0: This episode of Listen Up Ladies is sponsored by Onut. Onut is a revolutionary wearable that allows couples to explore comfortable deep penetration during intimacy. Thank you Onut for making this episode of Listen Up Ladies possible.
1: Welcome to the Listen Up Ladies podcast, where we talk all things pelvic floor, pain with sex, bladder leakage, and everything in between. My name is Rachel Fitt.
0: And my name is Sarah Anderson, and we are pelvic health physiotherapists in Australia who both share the same passion when it comes to giving you the right information that is backed by scientific evidence on all things women's health. Please note this content is general in nature and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Welcome back to the Listen Up Ladies podcast, and today we interview Dr. Albert Jung, who is a gynecologist with a special interest in endometriosis here on the Gold Coast. But before we get into the podcast, Rach, how was your week? My week was good, says. Oh my gosh, funniest story ever, and Sarah was 100% involved in this.
1: <laughs> we have been having so many tech issues, and the other week we were um, trying to figure out what was happening with Sarah's microphone, and she was carting a computer and microphone into every single room of the house. Even going in the wardrobes to try and see if you can make the sound better. And after three hours of doing this and going from place to place, I was like, Says, do you have? microphone plugged in properly like have you
0: selected the
1: microphone (laughs) and it was
0: her computer selected the entire time and we just it wasn't even my microphone wasn't even selected it was just my external laptop microphone and oh my god it was like the funniest the most annoying realization because we literally had a three hour meeting and this is like an hour two and a half so we'd almost finished but it took us so long because my bloody microphone
1: And what was funniest was Sarah was plugging in different microphones and we were like, testing, yeah. testing, testing, is this any better? And we were comparing them all and they were the same. I would like turn
0: up my microphone, turn it down, do a different setting and then re-record and nothing <laughs> would change. And I'm like, and then I got angry. I was like, rage, like it's not working. Like what? the
2: <laughs>
0: Oh my God.
1: It's only taken us six months to figure literally, it out. But you know what? We worked oh my it out. God. So- <laughs> Again, we have
0: to make a bloopers far out. Oh my God, I know. How was your week? (laughs) My week was good. I just got back actually from a professional development session with some physios. One, um, Ruth Sherbert, she's based down in Byron Bay from Exhale Physiotherapy. And oh my goodness, we actually learned so much. We went through internal vaginal examinations and then how to also help our pelvic pain patients in terms of treatment. So I was actually the patient and... I haven't been a patient, Rachel you and I did the course, what, four years ago, where we had to be the mm-hmm. patient for other physios, and that was four years ago, so it's been four years since I've actually been in my patient's shoes, and it's really important for physios to know what it's like to be a patient, so that was really cool to um, be on the other side Absolutely. of things.
1: Absolutely, that's so cool, I think that it's um, so important for us to be patients to know how nervous our patients can feel and to go through all those kind of emotions that come through or come with a vaginal examinations. So it's always good to kind of go back.
0: Yeah. Anyway, without further ado, let's introduce our new guest for today. So Dr. Albert Jung is a compassionate, competent and caring gynaecologist with a special interest in advanced laparoscopic gynaecological surgery.
1: Albert grew up in Toronto, Canada, before moving
0: to Brisbane for his medical studies. Albert's
1: interests lie in treatment for management of endometriosis, abnormal uterine
0: bleeding, pelvic pain, uterine fibroids, ovarian cysts and infertility. He manages complex pelvic pain with medical and surgical techniques including pelvic floor Botox and in conjunction with a multidisciplinary team. Albert has public appointments at the Mater, Springfield and QE2 Jubilee Hospitals. He also serves as a senior lecturer and mentor for the University of Queensland Medical School.
1: Albert is passionate about teaching junior medical staff and in particular is involved in workshops aimed to improve surgical skills and pelvic anatomy. We found our chat with Dr Albert Jung super interesting and can't wait to share it with you all. Here's Dr Albert Jung.
0: Hello, Albert, and welcome to our podcast, Listen Up Ladies. Both Rach and I are really excited to talk to you today about all things high-tone pelvic floor, overactive pelvic floor, and Botox to treat these types of pelvic floor dysfunctions. But first of all, can you just start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got to become a gynecologist with a special interest in endometriosis?
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Um, So my name is Albert. I'm a gynecologist and advanced laparoscopic surgeon here based in Brisbane with a particular interest in endometriosis, pelvic pain and minimally invasive surgery. I work both publicly at Mater Hospital and at QE2 as well as doing some private work. I did my specialist ONG training in the southeast corner of Queensland and as I reached the end of my ONG training I had this really amazing opportunity to complete a further AGES fellowship under. Drs. Michael and Williams, Anushaz, Danny and Tal Jacobson.
0: And I saw on your Instagram, Albert, you are planning on going to Italy last year in 2020. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that was the plan. So last year, uh, around this time last year, I was actually awarded the Ages Travelling Fellowship. Uh, and with that, I was planning to go to Italy to spend some time with um, someone by the name of Marcello Ciaccaroni, who's a gyne-oncologist and a fantastic pelvic surgeon and anatomist and unfortunately as we all know covid has completely derailed those plans so we'll see what what happens in in the coming year and hopefully those international borders open back up soon
1: that's amazing i feel like physios don't really do that as often like it's amazing how specialists go all over the world and meet with each other and learn off each other where we're like just hanging here in australia with other physios (laughs) (laughs)
2: definitely that continuing medical education is a big part of of what we do. And and you try and make it fun because, you know, you can only go to Sydney or Melbourne so many times from Brisbane.
1: fantastic. And can you also tell us three facts about you that we may not already know?
2: Oh, gosh, okay. Uh, The first one, um, I'm an avid cyclist, although I don't get to ride as much as I'd like. Uh, Number two... I'm good at many things, but music is definitely not one of them. I do not have a musical bone in my body at all. And, <laughs> and the third one, um, my favorite self-care thing to do right now is, is to go float. I don't know if floating is a big thing down in Melbourne, but um, you, you float in a tub of Epsom salts, lights out, no music, just float. And that sensory deprivation is great for... for mindfulness and relaxation yeah
0: i love that and flow tanks these days they're popping up everywhere they're quite um they're quite popular on the gold coast i know they are true in melbourne rage, but they're quite good for mindfulness and in these days i think it's really important to practice mindfulness
2: i highly recommend it it takes a little bit of getting used to the first couple of times but highly highly recommend it and you can also do like a little couples flow with your partner and it's a lot of fun
1: that's cool. It definitely is a trend in Melbourne as well. My cousin's done it. She told me she fell asleep floating. Is that a thing? Like,
2: <laughs> good honor. Good honor. That's not. Um, it's actually quite difficult to do the first time. You're just thinking about all sorts of different different things, and and to completely turn that off and and, and fall asleep is is good honor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it took me good. probably three, four sessions before I could float and sleep at the same wow. time.
1: Wow. It's just hard to imagine,
0: isn't it? Being that
1: relaxed that you just
0: and you can totally just zone out right, how good. Well let's get straight into it. So Albert can you help us define what is the difference between an overactive pelvic floor and a high tone pelvic floor?
2: Sure, so these terms are often used quite interchangeably um, but strictly speaking high tone pelvic floor refers to a persistent or elevated resting tone whereas an overactive pelvic floor refers to a pelvic floor which really reacts inappropriately to stimuli, both in amplitude and frequency.
0: And in terms of the symptoms that a patient might present with, if someone had a high-tone pelvic floor or an overactive pelvic floor, I know they both can be used interchangeably and they can present with the same symptoms, but do you see a difference?
2: Uh, again, uh, big overlap between the two. But w- often with a high tone, they, uh, women will complain of uh, more persistent pain. Whereas with an overactive pelvic floor, a stimulus, whether that's sex or whether that's passing bowel motions or, or passing urine, that causes more pain. But Again, big overlap between the two.
0: And I know in pelvic floor physio as well, there is a big overlap in terms of diagnoses between overactive pelvic floor and high-toned pelvic floor. So when it comes to things like vaginismus, vulvodynia, provoked vestibulodynia, they all can be used very much interchangeably and have the same symptoms.
2: That's correct, yeah. So there's a lot of overlap and, and um, it's not as black and white and easy to categorize women into one box or the other.
1: And I suppose that brings us on to the next question as to what conditions predispose you to this because I suppose the hypertonic, more consistent, I suppose, pelvic pain, uh, do you usually see them more with our chronic pain conditions like endometriosis where there's actually pathology? Or?
2: Yes, definitely. So um, in my work, the most common cause of, of overactive or hyperton- high-tone pelvic floor would be secondary to endometriosis. But this can be caused by a multitude of different um, factors, whether that's previous trauma or injury, infections, bladder or bowel dysfunctions. They can all lead to an inappropriate response of that pelvic floor.
1: And then moving into treatment for these women, what are the treatment options for the high tone and the overactivity?
2: So the first thing is to try and manage that initial predisposing factor. So for example again in my line of work if we're talking about endometriosis and managing that endometriosis either in the form of of often both surgical management as well as hormonal suppression is one of the key steps to moving forward. Uh, Of course uh, managing um, constipation, having good pelvic floor physiotherapy involvement, good diet are all very important And of those, I would single out pelvic floor physiotherapy as being the most important, the most paramount of of anything else.
1: And I suppose that's probably a little bit like us as physios as well, as we're looking more holistically at the body as well. What else is, you know, movement pattern-wise could be contributing to the high-tone pelvic floor?
2: I absolutely agree that we we really need to approach women at a holistic level, not just saying, hey, endometriosis, let's cut it out, you're sorted, you're done. There's so much more contributing factors to, um, and sometimes it is a little bit of the chicken or the egg, which one came first, but they do feed off on each other constantly.
1: Absolutely. And I suppose you see a lot of that fear avoidance patterns that start to develop as well, which makes it hard to differentiate what was that initial cause. Is it purely the endo or is it something else? So, um, yeah. And then I guess in terms of Botox injections, so you do a lot about you do a lot of Botox injections. Can you just like give us a bit of a rundown as to what the indications for Botox are and when should we be sending patients to you for this and for ladies in the community that have pelvic pain, when should they consider Botox?
2: Sure, absolutely. So Botox injections have a role in pelvic floor um, and, and pelvic pain really secondary to an overactive or hypertonic pelvic floor. So uh, if it's secondary to something else, Botox... Not really mm-hmm. not really a role. Um, I would class- uh, further clarify to say that it needs to be refractory to physiotherapy and other conservative management. Okay, So if you are making progress, if a, wo- uh, if a woman is, is having good effect from physiotherapy, I would not necessarily send her off to Botox at that stage. It's the women that have exhausted all of their physiotherapy, their they're great with their their bowel hygiene their bladder hygiene and still have ongoing hypertonic pelvic floor muscles those are the ones that would would potentially benefit Hmm.
0: and i guess going back to that fear avoidance aspect as well and when patients perceive their pain to be threatening and pain is the bad guy do you find that these types of patients who are so sensually sensitized that botox won't work as well for them or do you find there's just no difference
2: um uh, Uh, We'll touch on this, I think, a little bit later on as well, but Botox really is about paralysis of those muscles. So it does a very good job at paralyzing those muscles, but that doesn't always correlate to resolution of pain. So to put those two together, physiotherapy, sometimes input from a psychologist, cognitive behavior therapy, are all going to play a role in management.
0: It's such an important point as well because a lot of our patients who have pelvic pain, they do Mm. see a psychologist and a lot of the time too, by the time they get to pelvic floor physio, it's taken them 12 to 18 months to book the appointment because it is, you know, it's a sensitive area. Do you find that those who delay their treatment and have a long history of chronic pain, their outcomes aren't the same in terms of the Botox and just general treatment to treat the overactive and the high tone pelvic floor?
2: It's, it's a highly um, variable answer there, and it really depends on how uh, motivated the woman is, I think. That's, that's a key factor there. But I think a minimum of three to six months, if not longer, of good pelvic floor physiotherapy is a requirement. So I would not put pelvic floor Botox in um, into a woman without having already had pelvic f- floor physiotherapy input before we go down that route.
1: That's really good to know because I was just telling Sarah actually before that I had a patient the other day who has pelvic pain just sudden onset about a year ago and had a Botox injection on Monday, a pudendal nerve block, and then they did a biopsy as well. Mm. And we had only one physio session before Mm. she had all of that done and we had good results but they were very short-lasting. And I wonder if we had been able to persist with the physio for that three to six months if we would have 100% resolved her symptoms so that kind of then leads me to what about the women that we see where it does take them a long time to get to us but they want a quick fix is Botox something that can almost put a band-aid on it while we do some retraining to decrease their pain
2: I think um that comes back to setting some some real ex- realistic expectations as well unfortunately with pelvic pain and particularly with persistent per- pelvic pain there is no such thing as a quick fix yeah commonly with endometriosis we often put all our eggs into the surgical basket thinking we're going to be completely pain free after surgery and that's that's not the case so um Unfortunately, there is no quick fix. I wish there was, but there is no quick fix. Um, but absolutely, uh, Botox is, again, there to supplement and help pelvic floor physiotherapy. Yeah? So for the women that can't tolerate internal exams, can't tolerate anything into the vagina, that's where that Botox is really helpful yeah? from a muscle spasm point of view.
1: Onut is an intimate wearable that can help you manage and potentially reduce pain during sex by allowing you to easily customize how
0: deep penetration goes. Worn externally at the base of a penetrating partner, example on their shaft or on a toy, Onut compresses down to act as a soft buffer during sex. Each set comes with four linking rings that allow you to make simple adjustments so you and your partner can not only discover comfort but also what depths feel really comfortable for both of you. Owner is designed to feel just like skin.
1: It's so comfortable, like a gentle hug, you and your partner will barely notice it's there. BPA, phthalate, and latex free, your owner is made from
0: FDA approved body safe material. And we have a special offer just for you, ladies. Use Listen Up Ladies or One Word at the checkout for $7 off your next purchase. And
1: just a little bit of a side note if someone has voiding dysfunction so they're not able to empty their bladder properly or they might be using an intermittent self catheterization technique, is that a contraindication for someone having a Botox injection into the pelvic floor muscle for spasm?
2: It's not an absolute contraindication because we know that women who have severe endometriosis can have some of those same symptoms whether that's Feelings of incomplete voiding or or feelings of retention. Um, There is separate Botox that we often put in. uh, A urogynecologist may put Botox into the Mm -hmm. bladder, generally for an overactive bladder, and that's a slightly different uh, topic to what we're talking about today. So not a complete um, or an absolute contraindication, but something to be wary of as you can get some voiding dysfunction with pelvic floor Botox.
1: In terms of incomplete emptying, do you mean?
2: Both in terms of incomplete emptying and retention. Yeah, and retention as well, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Can I just clarify here, we've been using the term Botox, but Botox is actually the trade name. And, and, and just to be clear, what we're really talking about is something called botulinum toxin. So Botox has become uh, the most well-known because of its use in cosmetics but that's actually the trade name. So the, the gynecologists that your patients may, your mo- women may see, they might use something different like Disport. It's essentially, th- it's akin to paracetamol being the generic name, but you can get Tylenol or Panadol or, um, uh, or, or so forth. Um, sorry, uh, Panamax or dimodon. So they're different trade names for the same medications. So Botox is a trade name.
0: And that's really important to clarify, I think, too, because I know that Botox now, it's such a big thing everywhere. It's been a big thing all the time, but I think nowadays it really is ramping up. And I know this might sound silly, but the Botox you inject to your face, is that different to what you inject into your pelvic floor?
1: That's a good question, though.
2: Uh, Yeah, great question. Same, same, but different. Um, So in essence, they are the same. Yeah, so some people will use Botox or and some people will use disport into the pelvic floor muscles. Yeah, so you can use either or, but they're, for example, they're slightly different concentrations.
0: Mm. And then I guess going yeah. back to that difference between overactive pelvic floor and high-tone pelvic floor, from a physio perspective, the way we assess and diagnose a difference is generally via an EMG biofeedback with an internal vaginal probe a lot of the time, uh, physios may not have this, so we use digital examination instead. Um, but the the EMG is the gold standard to make it the most sensitive and specific outcome. What do you guys do in terms of diagnosis? Do you clarify or do you differentiate the two or do you just insert Botox with either or?
2: From my point of view, um, again, and that's where your expertise comes in, clinically for me, I don't generally separate between high tone or overactive pelvic floor
0: and that's really good to know as well because up until i guess Mm. about a year ago i didn't even know there was a difference between overactive and a high tone pelvic floor and i think it's nice to know that despite the difference we can treat it differently but in terms Mm. of botox you can still treat the same with the same outcomes
2: Um,
0: but just can you explain to us how exactly it works which muscles do you insert or do you inject the botox into
2: yeah, absolutely. So um, the, there's several different techniques that have been described. The technique that I use is is a technique that's been described by Dr. Susan Evans, who's a gynecologist and a pain specialist, and this is based off of her um, uh, article, The Simplified Technique of Injecting Botulinum Toxin into the obturator internus muscle using ultrasound-guided nerve stimulation for persistent pelvic pain, which she... Um, uh, wrote up for the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Obstetricians or, or Excuse me, obstetrics and gynecology in 2015. Essentially, using ultrasound guidance and a nerve stimulator, we focus on bilateral obturator internus muscles as well as the pubococcygeus muscles. So those are the two main muscles that we target. If you have generalized hypertonic pelvic floor muscles you do it equally however if you have one side that's greater than the other or more hypertonic than the other you can tailor it to that specifically
0: and so sorry when you say it's ultrasound guided Mm -hmm. is that transperineal or transabdominal
2: transabdominal yeah transabdominal yes The second part of that question: How does it work, the the Botox? Um, So, several mechanisms uh, have been proposed for Botox. So, overcontracted muscles lead to compression of both vessels and nerves. Compressed vessels lead to ischemia, and, and which cause pain, and compressed nerves cause pain. So, when you when you can get that paralysis of that muscle, you get that relaxation of those muscles, which leads to relaxation of the vessels and of the nerves. Furthermore, uh, we think Botox plays a role in inhibiting acetylcholine into acetylcholine release into the nerve endings as well as having a direct analgesic effect.
0: Mm. So would you say it's more so the increased blood flow or the blocked blood flow or the increased neural activity causing the pain or a bit of both? Uh,
2: again, I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, it's the, the constant contraction leads to... Uh, ischemia causes more pain. the The analogy I use is if you're holding onto a bag of groceries, a, a heavy bag of groceries, just that contraction alone, after a long period of time, causes more pain. Mm.
0: And so, what about things like when we're at physio school and we learn about, you know, manual therapy and soft tissue massage? One of the theories behind soft tissue massage is that it improves blood flow, and improved blood flow promotes healing and whatnot. Is it different for the pelvic floor?
2: No, I wouldn't imagine that it's, it's different. Um, I'm sure you know about this sort of stuff much better than I do. But no, it, it, again, by that mechanism I described earlier, you're not getting that blood flow because that muscle contraction is so tight and it prevents a- adequate blood flow there.
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose when you look at the soft tissue massage and the trigger point release work, you're just looking at general skeletal muscle within the pelvic floor really. Yeah, and my other question was just about Botox and, well, actually, the not Botox, the word you said before. I'm not even going to try and say it. My patients know that I can't <laughs> say these long
2: words. <laughs> Botulinum toxin. That
1: one. Um, so is that typically done under a general anaesthetic or can you do that in the rooms as well?
2: Uh, I would typically do this under a general anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. So the patient would be asleep mm-hmm. but would not have paralysis uh, and that's to guide my uh, injection points using that nerve stimulator. Um, so generally, in theatre is how I would do it. Yeah.
1: Sure. And then going back to where you inject it, can it be injected into puborectalis to help with constipation symptoms?
2: Uh, yes, it, it can be. It's that's often the realm of a. a um, colorectal surgeons. So colorectal surgeons will use that uh, in that role, um, but I do not as a gynecologist.
1: No, yes. Okay. That's good to know. And then when someone gets this, what does their recovery look like afterwards and how soon should we expect it to work
2: and see results? Yeah. Uh, so generally this is a day procedure and, and women will go home on the same day They may have some localized pain for the first few days, but largely back to pre-BOTOX levels uh, soon after the procedure. In a small proportion of women, they may have a little flare of their pain around one to two weeks after the injection. Um, In terms of how long it lasts, the Botox itself, in regards to paralysis of those muscles, kicks in around day five to seven after the procedure and lasts for three or more months in terms of a paralysis point of view. Again, separating paralysis of that muscle and pain, I would hope that that pain lasts much longer than that again with some good pelvic floor physiotherapy in there as well. Mm -hmm. So more than six months, nine months type of picture from a pain point of view.
1: Yes, and if they were to have a second or a third injection, do you still get that same amount of time I suppose, benefit before it starts to wear off or does it decrease with each injection, I suppose?
2: Yeah. So we aim for, for we hope that we get fairly similar, but there is evidence that um, uh, Botox is not as effective the second mm-hmm. or third time around.
1: Okay. And if, I suppose if you had a 100 women that had this done for their pelvic pain, how many of them would
2: actually come out Pain free, like from a percentage perspective,
1: for that. So, again,
2: from a paralysis point of view, uh, paralysis is very good. 100% would have paralysis. In terms of pain resolution, I would say two thirds to three quarters of my women would have an at least an improvement in pain. Again, not necessarily complete resolution of pain, and that will often come with time, but Mm -hmm. when I would see them at the six week appointment, two-thirds to three-quarters, would have an improvement of their symptoms.
1: That's quite a good statistic, actually. I was just going to say, um, is there any follow-up that they need to do over that period
2: of time? Physio. Physio, physio, physio. Yeah, physio, okay. physio. yeah. Yep. so um, <laughs> I, I am happy for them to, I communicate with the physiotherapists that I work with and they know when they their women are going in for a um, pelvic floor Botox and I would encourage them to catch up with them sort of at that 3, two, 3 week mark um, at least touch base with them I would see them again at 6 weeks from a post-operative point of view and then uh, leave them in the hands of their capable physiotherapist
0: And then in terms of the ages of patients who normally present with this type of condition is there a, a common age or can, this, can Botox be in, injected into any type of age?
2: Yeah, for me in my practice again my practice being predominantly of of women with endometriosis and endometriosis uh, affecting mostly of reproductive age women, that's who I would see it in. Um, So let's say early 20s to 40s, Um, and that's who I would put it in as well.
0: So considering a large proportion of your patients have endo, What about going into, like, pregnancy? A lot of patients do get quite worried about their pelvic floor tonicity when they fall pregnant and if it's going to have any effect when they do fall pregnant. Do you see a difference pre- and postnatally? And also, does the Botox affect their chances of pelvic floor dysfunction after pregnancy? Is there any evidence to show this?
2: Um, I think the the simple answer is we we don't know, but no. Um, so in terms of pelvic floor, Botox, uh, having long-term issues in terms of childbearing or are you asking about delivery processes and so forth?
0: Yeah, I guess a lot of women who have high tone pelvic floor or they have things like pain with sex and they can't put tampons in and they do worry about what happens when they're going to fall pregnant. And a lot of the time, you know, if our patients with endo, their endo symptoms can down regulate throughout pregnancy. And I guess... A lot of patients do want to know what their pelvic floor will be like in terms of can they have a vaginal birth or, or whatnot, but I know it's a very big area and it's a lot to consider.
2: But pregnancy definitely does change the pelvic floor quite substantially. You can um, the, the weight of pregnancy carrying a baby for nine months at a time significantly changes things. Um, and it, I think it's... A little bit too tricky with all those different factors involved to say how it will go as you've mentioned pregnancy definitely is not a solution for endometriosis but sort of presses pause on progression of endometriosis and the symptoms of endometriosis and along with that often that pelvic floor irritation there as well Um, but postpartum i'll be honest there is no evidence there one way or the other
0: yeah, it's just so individual, is that There's so mm, many factors mm. to consider. What about a patient who goes to see a gynecologist who is going to get their Botox injections? What are the sort of questions they should be asking in terms of preparation?
2: Mm. I think it's a procedure. So uh, as with any procedure, I would ask, uh, as a patient, ask, How often this particular surgeon does this procedure, um, what the complications are and what the complication risks are uh, and the rates are, um, the side effects, trying to make an informed decision as much as possible.
0: And then going back to risks that are involved, are there any major risks? I know you said patients can flare after they have the Botox injected. Anything else that they should be aware about?
2: Yeah, so general risks and most risks are going to be short-term and transient. So uh, local pain, bruising, uh, muscle weakness, as mentioned, urinary incontinence or retention. So local pain is fairly common. However, something as as serious as urinary retention or incontinence is fairly rare, well under 1%. Even that tends to be quite transient. Um, We talked about a flare in pain usually at about one to two weeks and lasting for about a week or two.
0: And so you inject it into the obturator internus muscle on both sides, which is, it's a pelvic floor muscle, but it's also a deep hip external rotator. And I know in clinic, we do find our patients have a really, really hypertonic obturator internus. Do you find that's more so hypertonic than the other pelvic floor muscles?
2: Hmm, I think that is different, but it's, Partly because it's, it's the muscles that are relatively easily accessible, yeah. And definitely when when we when I, as a gynecologist, do an examination, I can feel this, those obturator internus muscles on a simple vaginal exam and how hypertonic and how tense they are, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I would agree. I would say 90% of my pain patients have spasm through their obturator internus, and that's
0: like the mm-hmm. referral
1: source of mm-hmm. their problems, so
0: Yeah which would then set off their glutes and their hip yep. flexors, their adductors. And so I find that also whilst we can internally, re- um, internally release, yeah, we can also externally release. And I find a massive benefit when you do look at the external structures, not just the pelvic floor, because if a patient hasn't got any glute strength, then it's probably because pelvic floor is just gripping on and trying to work in overdrive essentially. So I find getting the glutes to actually activate properly can make a big difference for their pelvic floor dysfunction and help to down regulate it.
2: Mm. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Definitely, and I suppose for the listeners
1: at home and all those people that do say they have overactive or hypertonic pelvic floors with no pathology or history of any pathology or conditions, it is important to look from a muscular perspective, like where are your strengths and weaknesses around that pelvis and your torso, your legs, like it all kind of interrelates. So because, Albert, would you say that overactive pelvic floors are overdiagnosed? Because I feel like... Nearly everyone has an overactive pelvic floor these days.
2: <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure that that... I, it's not a thought that had crossed my mind that they are overdiagnosed. Um, from an average gynecologist, I would actually say it's something that we haven't been very good about paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a gynecology point of view, I'd say the opposite. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, because interesting because I suppose we look at the muscle function with all of our patients in the clinic for pelvic floor when we're doing the vaginal examinations and I suppose I diagnose an overactive pelvic floor if they can contract but not fully relax or if they do have that high tone. But then sometimes you wonder, are we overdiagnosing this mm. and it's actually not as big of a deal like functional-wise. So it's just a bit of food for thought, I suppose. Mm. Mm.
2: Interesting. Yeah, interesting it is. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think it's really important for patients to understand as well that specialists and allied health, we all treat the same case, but we treat it very differently as well. And that's why it's so important to undertake a multidisciplinary approach when you are looking at pelvic floor, and pelvic floor is such a complex condition, and it's so interesting to me as a physio that you can do Botox and physio at the same time for the same condition, And and have some really good outcomes so I think it's really important for even physios to be aware that we can do this and you can almost I guess have a better outcome so
2: I 100% agree I think that interdisciplinary approach and communication is is so vital and so important I couldn't agree more
0: yeah and Rach and I attended quite a few post courses on pelvic floor under Taryn Hallam who was an amazing women's health physio and such a great role model for any physio delving into the pelvic health world she was talking about how a lot of specialists work vertically so you have your urologist working around the bladder urethra you have your gynees around the uterus and the vagina and then the colorectals in the back passage so rectum and, anus. and I think a lot of physios in pelvic floor we do work horizontally and it's really important to make sure we communicate and we work with specialists because it's such a small area but it's so complex and they really do work together so i know i have patients with endo who say for example their bowels might be all over the show one week and then their endo symptoms are worse and i see that massive correlation i know a lot of physios see that and you guys would as well and i think it's a a big reminder to understand that it's such a complex area and it's not just a one size fits all one specialist approach It's, it's really is a whole team isn't
2: it i think that's very important and and to work horizontally is is often a little bit easier said than done, but I think that is very important. And as clinicians, well, if we can't do that ourselves, we have to have contacts. We have to have we have to have friends in different areas to to be able to refer on to. But I I agree, yeah.
1: Mm, absolutely, and that's the hardest thing with managing our pain patients, isn't it? Is that they do need to sometimes see so many different um, health professionals to help with all of those different areas because. Even though it sounds like we specialize in that pelvis, there is so much to it that you can't be good at every single little part of it. So
2: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely.
0: Says, yeah. um, did you have any other questions? Look, I'm sure I'll have a whole lot more yeah. that will come up later on after we leave here. But I'm sure um, our listeners would love to hear more from you today, Albert. So if you would be okay to come back, we would Definitely. love to interview you again on different topics. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time and we really, really appreciate it.
2: I would love to come back. I've, I've had a lot of fun. I was a little bit nervous, but you guys have been great.
1: Beautiful. You've done an amazing job. And to wrap up, we have three questions that we always ask our guests before we finish off. And we just want to know the first things that come to your mind when you answer. Okay. Or when you hear the question. Okay. Okay. So the first one, where is the next place you would like to travel?
2: Oh, um, I would like to go back to Hawaii. I've been to Hawaii a couple of times, uh, once to Honolulu and more recently to Kona on the Big Island, and there's just something so serene and magical about Hawaii. So, Hawaii.
1: Beautiful. That's come up a few times, actually. Well, I need to go over there. I've never been.
2: <laughs> oh, you have to. You must. You must.
1: <laughs> Do you have a mantra that you live by?
2: Um, not a mantra per se, but I try to be grateful about everything every day. And you know, sometimes when you're in the in the thick of things, it's really hard to see the upside. But I think there's always an upside and trying to be grateful helps me get through the day.
1: I like that. And if you had 24 hours left on this earth, what would you be doing?
2: 24 hours? Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Um, I would spend it with family. I'd do the totally mundane things of, of playing Lego and wrestling with my boys and and going for a walk, and, and probably lots of hugs and kisses.
0: Living slower. I like that. I think COVID has definitely taught us to live a little slower and enjoy the present. Um, now, Albert, if patients want to come and see you to book an appointment, what's the best way?
2: Yeah, so privately I'm at uh, Eve Health, which is in Spring Hill. Um, and you can look me up on 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 the internet, just Eve Health, Albert Jung, and a little quick Google search should pop my name up
0: amazing and we will link albert's details in the show notes if you want to find him but otherwise thank you again and we will see you in the next episode
2: thank you so much i've had a great time can i just say i love what you guys are doing i feel very strongly about empowering women with knowledge and women being active participants in their care and i think the, these podcasts just hit the spot so kudos to both of you
0: thank you albert thank you for listening to this podcast If you would like to learn more, please head over to our Instagram page at listenupladies.podcast.
1: We would also really appreciate it if you could hit the subscribe button so our podcast is more accessible to women all over.